Today we turn in God's word to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. There's an outline as well on page 4 if you'd like to follow along. We again welcome those visiting online, church family, and also those visiting, perhaps checking things out. We're glad not only online, but those who are in person are visiting with us today. Those here for the baptism as well, welcome. We're grateful to have you here. Hear now God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. What do you think is perhaps the most common theme in poetry, sitcoms, and pop music? Love. What is the most commonly misunderstood theme in those settings? Love. R.C. Sproul says there is not any word in the English language that has been stripped of its depth of meaning more than the word love. So what is love? As we've seen in 1 John, this is the apostle of love. From verses 7 to 21 in chapter 4, The word love or loved is used 29 times. It says both in verse 8 and verse 16, God is love. What we want to see today, loved ones, is that you cannot define love apart from the nature and work of God as revealed in his Son. We look today first then at the very nature of, of God's love. Kevin DeYoung says there are some things that love is not. We've got to explain that before we talk about what love is, loved ones. What does it not mean that God is love? First, it doesn't mean that love is God. The is in verse 8, do you notice that, is not an equals sign. The sentence is not reversible. We worship a God who is love. We don't worship love as our God. What else does it not mean? It doesn't mean that the only definition of God is love. It doesn't mean love swallows up the other attributes of God. Some people think there are only two verses in the Bible. God so loved the world, John 3, 16. Do not judge, Matthew 7. And the contemporary view of a loving God is, well, God who loves would never. 
He would never want me to be unhappy. He would never say anything is sin or wrong. Four times in the New Testament, we see the words, God is. This is talking about the substance and nature of God. God is love. God is spirit. God is light. God is a consuming fire. Far from condoning sin, which the modern view of mushiness of God's love would do, his love has found a way to expose sin because he's light, to consume sin because he's fire, without destroying the sinner. How can that be? Well, that's what we'll see going forward. God's love is not blind love. It's not indulgent. Neither is his justice cold or arbitrary. God's love, thirdly, also does not mean that God is not love. (laughs) Why do I say that? Because the other extreme would be to deny God's love of benevolence for all creation. In his common grace, in his benevolent love, God loves every person and everything he's made. That's not a saving love. That's what's called, again, a providential kindness. We're not hyper-Calvinists who go to the other extreme either. So what does this mean? Verse 7, love is from God. John here is identifying a quality that God possesses. He's making a statement about the essence of God's being. It's not just that God loves, but that he is love. It's not God's behavior, but his essential nature he's talking about. The origin of all love is in God. His character, his essence is love. He's the fountain and source of all true love. Why is this so? God in the Bible is revealed as the Holy Trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is love because God is triune. Love flows between the three persons in constant interaction. Every activity expresses the love that's in the divine nature. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Son and the Holy Spirit love one another. Not just kind of a boring thing, but a dynamic thing. God within his own being loves The love of the Father for the Son is a definition of who the Father and the Son are. There's a delight the Father takes in his only begotten Son. Christ is the beloved of the Father, the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. And this eternal love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that existed before creation spills over into his creation as God perpetually gives of himself to his creatures. When the Bible says God is love, this is not saying God does not have any other attributes. This is important as well to understand. Do you know the oldest confession of the Reformed churches? 
Interesting. Not, I guess I should say, not a, a creed like Nicaea, but post-Reformation, the Belgian Confession, 1561. And it begins in Article 1 saying, there's a single and simple and spiritual being who we call God. God is simple. Kids, you might think, what does that mean, simple? That does not mean God's easy to understand. It doesn't mean God is slow. It's a divine attribute. The opposite of simple is compound. The simplicity of God means he's not made up of his attributes. He doesn't consist of goodness, mercy, justice, etc. He is goodness, mercy, justice. Every attribute of God is identical with his essence. God is what he has. So he's not a composite of parts. God's not like an orange, kids. That orange that you had for breakfast, it's so good and juicy and fresh. God's not like one piece of the orange holy and another piece of the orange love and another piece of the orange justice. God is his attributes at all times. Every attribute he possesses, he possesses to the full. The love of God, then, is a sovereign love, a holy love, a righteous love. His justice is a loving justice. One attribute doesn't swallow up all the rest. And yet... It is important to say what the Bible says, which is love, in a sense, is more natural to God than his wrath. God's wrath is not eternal. His wrath is the manifestation of his justice and holiness. The Bible says God delights to show mercy, never that he delights to show wrath. God is more inclinable to mercy than to wrath. Thomas Watson said that. But what does the Bible itself say? Well, Isaiah 28, God's judgment is his strange work. Theologians call it his alien task. Lamentations 3 says he does not afflict willingly, yet he does willingly and eagerly love God is in himself all that love is and does. But then how do we know it? Someone might say, well, where's the evidence of it? Secondly, the gospel of God's love. You sit here today and you look at the world, our city, the city we love, the city many of you grew up in, the city some of you have moved to, the city that some of you played Sports teams, on sports teams for violence and rioting. We look at the world around us, pestilence and plague. We look at damaged and broken lives and so much suffering and death. And people say, how could a God of love allow all of this to happen? Why do many Christians have a hard time believing They're loved by God. One reason is because of adversity and hardships. Satan wants you to believe a lie. Satan wants you to believe that if God really loved you, he wouldn't be allowing these adversities, these hardships, this difficulty even today that we're 
experiencing as a local church. Where then should we look to see the manifestation of God's love? In the person and the work of Jesus Christ. One of the most wondrous aspects of our salvation is that when God chooses to love you, his people, it's with the same love that exists among the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. The relationship the Son enjoys with the Father by virtue of his being the eternal Son, you enjoy by grace. 1 John 4.10 It is not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God did not respond to our prior love. He didn't foresee your love. Your love has nothing to do with his love. His love is an initiating love. There's nothing in you and I that drew us to God. Nothing in us that attracted us to God. The Bible says, well, we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So Christianity is not clean yourself up, get yourself presentable, and then come to God. Christianity is not, if you've had a good enough week, then maybe you can come to church. No. We come weary and bruised, broken and sinful, frustrated and sick and afflicted, and we come to hear the blessing of the gospel. That's why we come, and to encourage each other to press on. This sovereign, initiating love of God is from all eternity. Ephesians 1. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. By adoption in Christ, every believer shares this love that God has for his son, and it spills over onto us. This means God does not love all people the same. God loves his bride with a saving love. How many of you women would love it if your husband loved you the same as every other woman? A horrendous thought. The Bible says God loves his bride with a particular love, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And it was not because, as God says to Israel in Deuteronomy, you're more in number than the people. Not because you're better, but it's because the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of the peoples. It is because God loves you. God didn't just offer to be Israel's God. He didn't negotiate. He sovereignly chose them. The same with you, loved ones. His choosing of sinners for salvation is based on his unchangeable love. I chose you, God says, because I loved you. There's nothing beyond that. There's no kind of hidden fine print that you have to read on the back of the page. Your salvation is secure because it's based on God's love. And God's grace cannot be understood. It doesn't have a reason. 
It reflects who God is. This love is saving. It says in 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was made manifest, made visible, made known. How? In that God sent his son. God didn't send an idea from heaven. God didn't send a philosophy. God didn't send an angel. God didn't send a fallen human. God sent his only begotten, beloved son into the darkness and sin of this fallen world, leaving the riches of glory. And yet even the incarnation is not the height of God's love. Look at John goes on. In this is love, what? That he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 10. Look at your Bibles. Derek Thomas says, right now as you look at verse 10, if the word propitiation is not there, get yourself a different Bible. Why does Derek Thomas say that? Because of how crucial this word is. Because it's the translation from the Greek. And because it means wrath-appeasing sacrifice. All sin is an affront to God's holiness. God's wrath is his settled disposition against all sin. Sin violates God's law. His law demands that justice be done. God is just. He must punish sin. But God is also merciful. The gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel is good news, the glorious announcement that God sent his only beloved and eternal son into the world to save wretched, hell-deserving sinners like you and me. That Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life according to God's perfect law, performed many miracles and wonders, died an atoning, propitiatory, sacrificial death on a cursed cross, was buried for three days in the tomb, and rose from the dead, triumphant over sin, death, hell, and Satan himself. That's the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross, he became our substitute, taking the judgment that we deserve. And what John wants you to see here is this is magnifying the love of God. It wasn't that the Son had to twist the arm of an angry, wrathful father. In love, the father sent his son. He didn't just send his son. The father who himself loves you sent his only son. He didn't just send his only son. He sent his only son to die. He didn't just send his only son to die. He sent his only son to die the cursed death on the cross that we deserve, bearing the wrath of God for us. There you see the love of God for you. Not that your sins are forgotten, but that they're paid for. That's why propitiation matters. God's justice is satisfied in Christ. Because of the cross, God is love, God is mercy, God is just. We see it all at the cross. 
where God himself pays the costly price required by justice. Those of you who have children, those of you who know a child you love, nieces, nephews, a friend, we can't even wrap our minds around this. How much God loved you that he sent his son. Think of your son or your daughter or a child you love sent to die in our place. The good news promises that if you, by sovereign grace, put your faith in Jesus and repent and turn away from your sin, you will receive full pardon for all your sins. You will receive the perfect imputed righteousness of Christ for your salvation, everlasting life, joy in the presence of God forever. That's what this is about. Yet you might say, my sin is just, it's, it's too much. Ty Cobb was one of the greatest baseball players of all time. He was also one of the meanest men in baseball. Over 4,000 hits. Batted 366 for his lifetime batting average. He was continually involved in fights. Even his own teammates rooted against him at times in the batting race because they didn't even like him. He was just an angry dude. Not long before he died, he was visited by a pastor, Presbyterian pastor, who told him about the message of salvation. He told the pastor, get out of here. A couple days later, the pastor comes back. And at this point, the Spirit of God seemed to be at work, from what we've read, as this angry, brutal man, it said, put his faith and trust in Jesus. If you you think my sin is too great, remember the cross of Christ. And remember this, that the greatest sorrow and burden that a person can lay on their heavenly Father the greatest unkindness you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you. He loves you expansively. This saving love of God is poured out, Romans says, abundantly, not tight-fistedly, not in a Scrooge-like manner, but Ephesians says, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, We are rooted and grounded in love. And by the Spirit, we know the love of Christ that what? Surpasses knowledge. Rooted and grounded. Meaning when storms come, and they have come for you, some of you are going through a storm right now. Storms will continue to come. Trials, adversities, chastenings, because the Father loves you. When they come, you are rooted and grounded in Christ. They won't blow you down. A couple weeks ago, we had big windstorms around here, right? And our basketball hoop in the driveway was not quite secure enough. Down it goes. Crash. And now the rim is bent. And the kids are saying, how can I shoot baskets with a bent rim? (laughs) Well, the love of Christ will not allow you to crash on your face. He will hold you. He will sustain you. Why is it that people struggle with this love of God? Because some of you perhaps have only known the kind of human interaction that people call love but isn't. 
that is manipulative, unstable, belittling, abusive, on again, off and controlling. You don't know what's coming at you. And you hear about the love of Christ and you think of all these experiences you've had and you think maybe that's going to happen to me. And the Bible says that is a, a great thing to weep over, what you've been going through. But the love of Christ is not like that. It is long enough to last forever. Your old age cannot wear it out. Your tribulations cannot exhaust it. Your temptations will not drain it dry. It knows no bounds. It's like an ocean with no bottom and no shore. It fills our every horizon, our thoughts, our emotions, our affections. And when we behold Jesus in glory one day, when we have been there for 2,000 years, we still will not have even come close to the end of it. The love of Christ like this is not like the Truman Show. Remember that old movie? Truman, Jim Carrey, was placed in a world by the director, and one day he got in a sailboat and he wanted to get to the edge of the world. And what did he do? He ran into a wall. That was it. That was the edge of the world. God's not like that. You won't ever come to the edge or the end of God's love for you in Jesus. Third, how do you respond? John has taught us God is light. Live as children of light. God is our Father. We live as children of God. God is love. Let us love one another. Our love for each other is not the gospel. We don't live the gospel. We've just explained Christ's life and death and resurrection is the gospel. But it's not that we hear the gospel to be saved and then we move on to other things. The more we comprehend and believe the love of Christ for us, the more we are strengthened in the race, strengthened to love each other as we have been loved by God. That's what John's saying. We don't move beyond this, loved ones. So what is love in your life? Do you know that in the New Testament, love is the most frequently taught character trait? Mentioned over 50 times. Do you know what's second most after love in terms of what the New Testament mentions? Humility. We keep coming back to that. Love and humility. 1 John 4, 7 says, Whoever loves has been born of God. We're not born loving. By nature, we hate God and we hate our neighbor. But by the Holy Spirit, by the gift of regeneration, we are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. We now have the DNA of our Father, like you kids share in the DNA of your parents. The primary fruit of the Spirit is love. The Holy Spirit now gives you a capacity for love that's not natural to you or to me. So as we think about love, we don't choose to love based on the weather or digestion or good vibrations. The Beach Boys weren't right. Or heredity or environment. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that produces this genuine Christian love. 1 John 4, 8 says, if you don't love, 
you're not a believer. Before we were a Christian, what was it? It was all about me. Self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-assertion, self-conceit, self-pleasing, self-seeking, self-sensitiveness, self-defensiveness, self-sufficiency. But now that you're in Christ, God's love by his spirit puts a sword through self and puts a sword through pride and self-righteousness. So now, verse 11 of 1 John 4, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See that word so? Verse 11. That's an intense word. God intensely loved you. We just talked about it. We must now be ever prayerful against doing what is formally, outwardly right without putting our heart into it. Jesus says, don't be like the Pharisees who draw near with their heart, with their mouth and their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is what we need to pray every Lord's Day. Throughout our week, when we get up in the morning, God, by nature, I don't want to love you or anyone right now. I want to love myself. But by your Holy Spirit, help me right now to die to self. Look at what John says in verse 12. Here's another reason for why our love for each other is so important. No one has ever seen God. Do you know that? No one has ever seen God. What does he mean? God is spirit. God is in himself invisible. God is light. That light is in its ineffable glory, unseen. But the form it takes in the created world is love. And John is saying this, our world living in spiritual darkness and hate and violence and rioting and death does not see God. But if we love one another, the Christian who loves reveals the unseen God. This is tremendous. The unseen God who has revealed himself in his son reveals himself in you, his people, when you love each other. God's love is seen in your love because your love is his love imparted to you by his Holy Spirit. God's glory radiates from the lives of his people. John says this love is perfected, meaning made complete. If we love one another, God abides, let's talk about this as a church, among us. His love is perfected among us. There's a corporate aspect to this kind of love. What does it look like among us at Emmaus Road Reformed Church? It means we're not coming to worship alone together. We're not here on isolated islands. We're here to join with our suffering brothers and sisters in Christ as we say, how long, O God? We're here as we rejoice with one family over the baptism of a covenant child to put our arms around and love other families who have had perhaps multiple miscarriages, 
who have perhaps longed for children, who have not been able to have children, who find a lot of pain sometimes in the midst of these moments. We're here as we aren't able today to say goodbye to a family we've loved for years. As this woman and her kids will be heading to Malaysia perhaps soon. This week, how can we express our love even as we are not able to do that in person? Many of us are not here today. And this is a moment where we need to ask for grace to love each other. And if someone's feeling sick, not to go around and point fingers, not to gossip over text messages or emails about this or that, not to say, well, who gave this to me? Not to do that. To love each other. To reach out, as many of you do, with a text message and say, if you're not feeling well, how can I help you this week? Can I drop off a gallon of milk? Can I take your dog for a walk? Sending a, a text message with a scripture verse. I, I've thought of you today as I'm reading in the Psalms and I was praying this verse for you. There are so many ways right now. Satan wants to get an angle on us as a church and on every church, especially in times of conflict, sickness, affliction, and difficulty. Pray against that right now, Emmaus Road. There's more of the love of Christ when we're together than when we're alone. That's Paul's point. And we pray that we will be back together again soon. We want to make sure that as we're assembled with the, God, the people of God, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, we look around for ways to show love. During the week, we, we look around. That we don't let the initiative to love come from someone else. That's what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to sit back and say, well, let them initiate. Christian love doesn't do that. We're tempted to allow an offense to impede us in our love. Christian love doesn't do that. So we are called by the Spirit to show love in our countenance, in the way that we express ourselves physically, smiling, looking at each other in the eye, not ignoring, not, remember what R.C. Sproul talks about, the, the, the eyes that bounce? I think he told the story Sproul did once of, of a nurse who saw a doctor come down the hall and that nurse looked at the doctor in the eye and smiled and greeted the doctor. A few minutes later, the nurse saw this very struggling, sick person wheeling down the hall. What did the nurse do? Look down. No eye contact. No connection, no love. Meaning, this nurse wanted to show affection or appreciation for a doctor, but not the other person. That should not be how we interact. Here's what Sinclair Ferguson says. Our attitude to our fellow believers is a clear expression of our attitude to God and the way we think of God. We are to others precisely what we believe God has been to us. The spirit of a believer that doesn't embrace and welcome the weakest of fellow believers betrays a spirit of judgmentalism and betrays that this is how they think of God himself. John is calling us 
to a self-denying, self-giving commitment to each other's best interests. By the grace of God, we pray that this will be what marks us as the family of God. This has applications, as we'll look at next week, Lord willing, in Christian marriage. Applications in terms of friendship. And applications in terms of discipleship. John's command to love each other is one reason that we find discipleship in the local church. You can find five or seven men or women outside the church that are all your age, that like what you like, that do what you do, that you can kind of hang out with. There's nothing wrong with that. But John is saying that will never substitute for the church. Because in the church, we learn to love those different than us. In the church, we need to be family to grow up more and more in Jesus. And once we are part of the church, everyone around us here are your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is your context for discipleship, Christian. God says, I'm going to grow you where you're not able to pick and choose who you want to hang with. We get to pick and choose our friends, and that's a great thing. But in the church, we're pressed way beyond that. We don't pick friends. But friendships grow in the church with people that we never would have befriended otherwise. Love is manifest in relationships that never would have happened otherwise. Because this group of people never would have been brought together in any other setting. But God has done this in his sovereign grace. Parts of our sins will be challenged in ways they wouldn't have otherwise. We will be more mature for it. And here is when we learn how to love. When feelings get hurt. That's when the opportunity to learn how to love begins. Not when it ends. May God help us to love each other now. As we look forward to that day in heaven, which will be a world of love, when we will love each other with nothing external to hinder us, with nothing gnawing at us, with no bitterness, with no selfishness, with no envy, with no contention, why will that be? Well, heaven is a world of love because God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the fountain of love, is there. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we daily need to be reminded of the gospel of your love for us in Jesus to begin to love this way. We thank you that Christ fills us through his Holy Spirit with your love, O God, shed abroad in our hearts. May we be a congregation who deeply loves one another from the heart to the praise of your glory. O Father, we pray you would produce this for Jesus' sake. In Christ's name we pray, amen.